I'm Justin Mosqueda. You can find me on Twitter at J-U-M-O-S-Q. I'm here with my co-host Charles McDonald. You can find him on Twitter at 4Verts. We're here with a very special guest, our friend Sigmund Bloom, the co-owner of footballguys.com. You can find him on Twitter at Sigmund Bloom. Say what's up to the people, Sig. Oh, what's up? This is beautiful. This is uh, the most – football season is always stimulating, but draft season might even be more stimulating because it gives us a chance to dig in and argue about just about anything about football you could think of. Yes, the most wonderful time of the year. It's uh, some people it's arguing call it time. Christmas. Yeah, it's arguing time. Yeah. And with the draft, what about? I think we're 18 days out at this point. There's mm-hmm. plenty of arguing left to do, and we have a lot of questions for Bloom, who's done uh, work that you know mostly offensive skill guys for uh, football guys. So let's dive right into these questions from Marcus Mosher at Marcus underscore Mosher, fellow NFL 1000 guy. He's a great follow. Why isn't Curtis Samuel getting more round one hype? You know, I have to think that it's he's a, just a pure projection at wide receiver right now. And that makes it more difficult to peg his value. Um, I think it was Tony Pauline, long, long time draft guy, that floated out there this idea that earlier, early in his career, he'll be more of a Darren Sproles type of player. Uh, you know, maybe making more of an impact as a return man or a receiver out of the backfield. Um, and I think that, that Tyreek Hill certainly has done a lot to, you know, guys, we could get into the the debates about these manufactured touch players and how Percy Harvin or Cordero Patterson, you know, for whatever reasons, didn't live up to what the hopes were at different times in their career. So I think that teams might still be a little more gun shy on Samuel as a receiver. What he can offer as a running back is limited. Yes, he can offer something as a returner, but compare that to say Christian McCaffrey, where it feels like what he can contribute is in such clear focus and is already polished and refined and the transition will be smooth. I'm not sure about the transition for Samuel. Now, do you think Samuel could be a running back like from the get go or would you like to see him at receiver? Well, I think that he has his own position. So this is I'll just go off on a tangent because that's all I do. So I'm thinking about Christian McCaffrey. Right. I'm I'm wondering, guys, you know, having fantasy football and putting yourself in from that angle sometimes exposes things that you don't see otherwise. And we saw, because we were so concerned about running backs not getting 300 or 350 touches 10, 15 years ago, that running back by committee was coming. That having one running back that does everything in your backfield was going to go the way of the dodo. And we've arrived there. And now I wonder if having a running back that only takes carries and catches dump offs and screens is going to be something 10 or 15 years from now that's a niche running back where we used to think of that as the core value of a running back. And I wonder if running back and wide receiver might start to blend as a position in in the way they're used in offenses, especially as offenses start to spread the field more. And you're going to have a quarterback deficit coming up where I think there are going to be fewer and fewer quarterbacks who can hang in the pocket and you'll have to have more quick decisions. Like we know what, what Washington has done with Kirk Cousins. You know, you make things structured or what uh, Cincinnati did with Andy Dalton. 
And I wonder if that's going to lead to more of these players. It's hard to classify as a running back or wide receiver. But to get to your very simple and straightforward question, I think that teams are going to start out with him as a running back and then see if he can scale up and do more things as a downfield receiver. So, Sig, I have a question about that because I, I yeah. did a little piece for uh, for setting the edge. Um, I did. I think it was like our first little blog post piece where basically it, it really it really started because of the talk of the the two safeties who people were talking about as top five right. picks, right? And I basically just I plugged in numbers for like positional value uh, relative to contracts that are already in the league, and it was just right. like two two top five safeties is just completely unreasonable for how how you know. Right. You could find like if a top tier free safety hits the you know the open market, that's more of a value than drafting a guy that high. Um, I had so the question with the receivers and running backs, you know, th- there was something I can't remember who put it out. I think it was uh, NFL.com came out and talked about how there were some teams that were looking at McCaffrey as a full time receiver. Um, right. How much of that do you think? Like, is that is that for for you? Would that come down to you know a money thing where you're like you know if I have him at running back, we get him for five years and he's torn up. Or I can move him to receiver, which is like I want to say the third most valuable position in the league after quarterback and line of scrimmage defenders. Um, what what do you think about that whole idea of like McCaffrey being right. a receiver on some of these teams' boards? Well, I definitely think that you have teams that may have some approach where we want to spend this percentage for our cap at this position and this percentage for our cap at this position. And then you're right. You have this idea. It's not as severe as it used to be before the current CBA where, Oh, if you were drafting a player number two or number three overall, you were instantly making him one of the highest paid players at his position. Now that's not as true now with the new CBA, but you still have at some positions running back stands out uh, as something where you, you know, if, Leonard Fournette is going to be one of the highest paid running backs in the league. He's going to get a bigger contract than any free agent got this offseason. And as positional value dictates that you may spend because a wide receiver, any competent. So any competent wide receiver, Terrence Williams got more money this year in the offseason and free agency than any running back is going to get. Kyle Juszczyk, by the way, is, is going to be the highest paid running back in free agency, which again takes me back to the idea is, is a running back going to be somebody who also has to be able to block or be able to line up outside and run routes and, and catch passes to have value in the future NFL. So going back to your question, though, I think the other thing that could be playing into this is uh, going to two sets of meetings, you know, having to, to know the offense from two perspectives. But Christian McCaffrey has been around football his whole life. And this is one of the reasons why I part ways with people who don't, you know, running back position value. Why would you take one in the first round at all? But he's not just a running back. And he also has these characteristics that are catnip to NFL types when it comes to the first round because they want to feel comfortable with their pick. They want to feel like, you know, it's like the, the man marrying their daughter or something. You don't want to miss on a first round pick. And McCaffrey being around football as much as he has for his whole life. Um, and this is why I think he's associated with the Broncos, because he's a Colorado kid. And he's been around really like around the building, you know, um, teams are going to love that. So. I do think that the positional value of running backs is going to be playing more into what teams are doing with these positions, but it might not apply to someone like McCaffrey. And uh, I would think that a team that thinks he can't handle wide receiver and running back responsibilities going to both sets of meetings and so on will find, be pleasantly surprised. Now, right. And you, you brought, you brought up Kuzcek and like, even, yeah. even guys like, you know, th- there's some talk about like OJ Howard being like a blocking tight end and things yep. like that. Deion Sims was a legitimate blocking tight end coming yes. out of Alabama a few years ago. Deion Sims, if he were a running back, he'd have the sixth largest uh, veteran contract of any if any running back in terms of average salary, and that's just average salary, not including like total money. So it's kind of it's kind of 
odd to see that move because on paper you would say if a guy can play receiver, you let him play receiver. You almost treat it like offensive tackles and guards, right? How they used to right. be, where it's like I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if he has a chance here, I'm gonna play him here and then kick him inside, and that's not really happening yet in the NFL, but it should be happening on paper in theory. Now, how much do you think, uh, you know, the Christian McCaffrey to receiver talk is? How much is that? You know, I guess race driven because he's white, right? Because right. I, I mean, you never, you never see people talking about, you know, a, a running back from an offense like Stanford's that carried the ball that many times. Like, oh, he's a receiver, you know, like you, you, right. you don't really see it. Yeah, well, and and it, it certainly is something that you have perceptions or players get typecast. You know, uh, I, I think Zach Zenner was another guy that probably was not given a fair shake um, as a tailback. You know, uh, the, we make him a fullback or something like that. Um, I think you're right about that. And I think watching McCaffrey at Stanford as a running back, there's probably more there than what they got out of it. So I, I think that could be playing into it, too. Um, but certainly you do uh, with, with a player like McCaffrey or just with the idea of the t- I think the cornerback position also has this the quarterback position. I mean, now like the elephant in the room is if we're going to talk about race based uh, pers- like perception affecting how a player is projected in the pros based on things like that. Uh, it's still there, but thankfully I think uh, it continues to move in the right direction and that people like us are talking about these things. You know, we go back to Teddy Bridgewater is one of the most uh, controversial prospects in this, but it was talked about. And I think we're seeing progress, even if some of the people making the decisions, because this is the other thing in the, in the, the background, I mean, we have like our social culture and our advances, but the NFL isn't always the quickest to move when it comes to attitude. And I think if we could see the scouting reports that get passed around, like, you know, the classic national or Blesto, you would see how, like when Nolan, the Rocky thing with Cam Newton came out, a lot of the thinking in the NFL is, is still maybe a few steps behind where we might hope it is. All right. Well, you know, sticking on the topic of quarterbacks that you, or not the topic, but uh, let's move sure. to the next question. The quarterbacks from at Grant Sinning. How many of these quarterbacks go in the first round? Could be one, could be five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the key to unlocking the first round, right? Right. I, ha- I have noticed that two, three months ago, in a lot of mock drafts, there was a quarterback at two, quarterback at three even, maybe, all, maybe three quarterbacks in the top 12. Now you'll see draft mocks with maybe a quarterback at six or 10, often 12 being the first quarterback off of the board. Um, and at least two of the quarterbacks lasting into the 20s. And I think based on evaluating these guys, that fits. I don't see a prospect like a, a Jameis Winston or even as clean as Marcus Mariota was. Um, and, you know, we, we can we can uh, get the sword and shield out about Deshaun Watson. Um, but I, I think it makes sense that, and this is like the Matt Waldman school of quarterback scouting, where quarterback desperation shouldn't push you to taking a quarterback number one or number two, that it isn't in quarterback terms, you know, an exceptional prospect, but I think quarterback desperation is going to increase. And especially as some of these older quarterbacks got out of the league and there's not guys coming up to replace them. So I think we will see three or four. I think Deshaun Kaiser should go in the first round. I'm kind of confused of why he isn't just an automatic first round pick based on his ceiling, based on what we've seen. Um, I'm sure that Trubisky's going to go in the first round. I, I, I'm sure that Watson's going to go in the first round, uh, and Mahomes should go in the first round. So I think we'll see three or four. I don't, I, I don't expect a fifth to get in there. Webb, uh, oh, but I know. 
we talked, so we've been talking about Webb a lot on our show, that this just, again, this goes back to what I was saying with the NFL and some backwards thinking. They like, and I'm going to quote Eric Stoner here, you know, like simple, easy evaluations at quarterback. And quarterback's the toughest position to evaluate. So size and even like some personality things about Webb. And I think the incentive to get to five is if you take a fifth quarterback in the first round, whoever takes that fifth quarterback gets a, the fifth year option, which is a big deal, the quarterback position. Getting that extra year before you decide how much you're going to commit and things like that. You see how Washington's got themselves in trouble by buying that extra year with the franchise tag, and now they might not have any options after next year. So I, I would I would say three at the lowest, five at the highest, but I don't think you're going to see that panic that got Jared Goff and Carson Wentz up to one and two last year. And we may see, I mean, even though I think Deshaun Watson's going in the first round, he may be there for one of the playoff teams. He may be headed to Houston, which I think means we'd see him start maybe week one. Yeah, and I, I think that, uh, I, yeah, like you said, I think the floor is three. I think I think Watson and Trubisky are locks for the first round, and then one of Mahomes or Kaiser gets in. I'm not buying the Davis Webb talk. Like I feel like we did this with There's Tom no Savage. way. There's no way. We did yeah, this with Petty. We did this with Petty. Yeah. Savage. Uh, Ryan Nassib. Ryan Nassib, right. I'm not buying that at all. Agents. Agents. Yeah, I, I just don't think he's that good. Um, how Now, Michael Lombardi was talking on the uh, Ringer NFL show. I think it was last week. Yeah. He was saying, don't be surprised if Jacksonville takes Deshaun Watson at four. Because they're not sold on, because Coughlin's just not sold on Blake Bortles, right. and rightfully so. How, how would that surprise you? No. Well, and it'd be a better pick than Leonard Fournette. And I'm not. That's no. I mean, look. And I'm. I, and I. I think that the, the nature of the NFL pendulum. If and you saw with some of the signings that Jack Jacksonville had, like when they drafted that signed Parnell and they drafted AJ Can. Like they were trying to. And they signed Chris Ivory. They wanted to have a bully kind of running game. And sure, Leonard Fournette can be. The, the focal point of that, but he's going to be very highly paid, and he he is he's the, not the direction the NFL is going. He's where the NFL has been, and there's the pendulum effect. But certainly, you would like to say, well, let's see what Blake Bortles does this year with this new regime. But you don't necessarily have the luxury of that. You're not going to you're not going to pick up his fifth year option, which alone already is saying we don't expect him to be our starting quarterback in two years. So you're going to stick your head in the sand about that. I think that. You have to evaluate if you're Jacksonville, all four or five. If you want to include David Davis Webb, but of course I shouldn't joke because Davis Webb might be the pick at the top of the second round for them. And if they check enough of the boxes, how could you pass on that? And if we're talking about Miles Garrett, Jonathan Allen, it doesn't sound like teams are too concerned about his shoulders. And certainly on tape, he looks like he belongs in the top three. And take your pick of of the defensive backs, you know. Uh, it isn't like they're passing on somebody. At, it isn't like passing on Jalen Ramsey last year, for instance, to get a quarterback. I, I do think that I think that it would make sense if they think that Deshaun Watson projects not even as a franchise quarterback, but as Alex Smith or Andy Dalton with a chance to be better. Then how could you pass on that? So seeing where they're at with Bortles. Any input, right. Jesus? Yeah. So I, so. You make you make a good point about Leonard Fournette being where the NFL has been, and I kind of wanted to bring this up the first time we talked about running backs. But so explain to me. So I come from this perspective, right? We see right. all these numbers about Adrian Peterson under center, right, and then him in the gun, and how his numbers are declining and things like that. I don't think that's necessarily an Adrian Peterson problem. I think that's 
Like, I think any running back will tell you that if you're lined up next to the quarterback and you're taking off a handoff in the gun, um, it's a lot harder to run, especially if you have, you know, one fewer blocker, right? So I, I'm, I'm wondering, how do you build a team? Like, I, I understand how you could build a team in the NFL where Leonard Fournette is your focal point and he has a really good fantasy season, right? But yeah. I don't understand how you can build a team with Leonard Fournette as your focal point and you're going on a playoff run. No. And and look, again, who's always showing us the way? New England, right? I mean, New England has a mode to their offense that is, you know, we're going to run the ball, you know what we're going to do, and you can't stop us. And they have a running back that they've been getting for a million dollars a year, maybe because LeGarrette Blunt scored 18 touchdowns last year, they have to pay him $3 million this year or something. But it's not that difficult. The reality is, I've been joking lately, that running backs should have their own union because the current way the NFL setup just doesn't support their interests and it does make it a fungible position. So I do agree that you shouldn't be, I mean, Ezekiel Elliott is a little bit different because you've already built the team and then you have right. a running back that can unlock all what extra value you've built in. But I don't think that Leonard Fournette, I mean, I suppose you would have Leonard Fournette as part of your plan if you had a, a limited quarterback, but you don't plan for that. I mean, you, you do right. that. That's, that's, a, that's a, that's a strategy to try to make the best out of a bad situation. So I agree with that. And I, I think that the part of the problem is that, um, again, as New England has shown, it's it's a mode for your offense, but it shouldn't be the default mode for your offense. And I'm sure that with these teams going with five and six defensive backs, yeah, you can try to blow them off the ball and things like that. And, of course, Tennessee would be our, you know, just DeMarco Murray. Look at DeMarco Murray when he was lined up in the shotgun next right. to a, a quarterback versus DeMarco Murray in a – exotic smash mouth offense, but Marcus Mariota can do a lot. You know, that, that, that same offense, if you're running that same offense with Mike Glennon, it's not going to work. So I, I, I agree. And I think that Jacksonville, you know, you've got Tom Coughlin, you've got these attitudes and Leonard Fournette fits this attitude that you want to have. But as you said, I don't know if it equals wins. Right. And I think there's something to, I mean, even even what was crazy to me, I can't remember who it was, but there was some quote and it was like, we want to run the ball when teams know that we're going to run the ball. And some head coach said that in 2017. And my entire thing with that is just like, that's absolutely insane. If you look at like what New England does, right, for example, they're only running when they're getting light boxes. Like you shouldn't like it. There might be a situation where you don't run the ball. You know what I mean? If a team is going to be playing, you know seven guys in the box when you're spreading everyone out and they have seven guys accounting for six gaps, you should never run that ball. You know, if there's six mm-hmm. guys for six gaps and you're not running any sort of option, you shouldn't be running the ball. Um, so really like, t- tell me if I need to step back on this one, but I've, I've recently been trying to say that like running back evaluation should start with what a guy can do in the shotgun on passing plays yeah. and then work its way back from there based on how the league is right now. Yes. And I think that we're, it's funny because I think over the course of this time we've been talking, Justice, we've come at the same conclusion, but arrived at it from different angles. Because this comes back to what I was saying. Like, I wonder if a running back who just takes carries and can be a receiving back to the extent they can catch screen passes and, and dump offs, but not really be a functional moving piece in the passing game. And we, of course, we can include pass blocking in there too, which, which overlaps. But I'm wondering if that, that kind of classic running back is going to be like your third or fourth running back. Well, again, kind of like the way that New England's using LeGarrette Blunt, where they're just one flavor in a backfield, but the running back position as we understand it is going to change 
to fitting in that to fitting in a spread offense and to have those kinds of contributions. And I do think that we're seeing running backs get, you know, going back to Curtis Samuel and bring up the name Darren Sproles. Darren Sproles is 33, 34 years old. And he still got run in the NFL. And I think that the type of running back he is plays into that to some extent. And I do think that those kinds of running backs that maybe were not given as much of a role in the previous NFL will be given more of a role in the NFL. And as you basically indicate, maybe be your starter or your primary running back, much in the same way that defenses are in base. Like the nickel is a base defense now. Your slot corner is a starter now. And maybe the terminology and the the designations of the positions haven't caught up, but I think the way teams are valuing players is catching up. So that kind of makes me think about like I, I, sometimes I wonder if if uh, you know draft Twitter. I don't think they value pass blocking enough as you know a running back trait because like when I see when I watch Leonard Fournette, you know one thing that really sticks out to me is that he's really you know I think he's an excellent pass blocker. Like he's not on the level that. Zeke or Derek Henry were in that regard last year, but your your third back or your your guy who's going to be on third down, you know, he still needs to be able to block. So I I think you know because you, you can't just run out as a five man protection every player, and you don't want to right. keep no. your tight ends. And so like pass blocking has to be a very like it's it's almost becoming like a key trait for running backs because if I have to take you off the field, then that's just going to tip our hand to the defense. What exactly. we have to do on this play, so. I don't. I think that when you look at guys who can pass protect but may not have, you know, the gaudy catching abilities, I think those are the guys that coaches are going to lean towards early in the draft. Which is why I think, you know, whether it's earned or not, Fournette is probably going to go in like with the top twelve picks. Yeah, I mean, this is floor is sixteen at Baltimore, I think, but I, it looks like Jacksonville, Carolina this point and i think you're right and i think that the key is and this is something we should always be thinking about uh at this time of year when we're looking at players and protecting them is um uh as you mentioned um minimizing predictability or 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 minimizing rigidity in offense or defense and again this is another area where we can look at new new england and how bill belichick was thinking this but it was it's just so funny just as a quick aside i think it was um the thing that went around about uh uh Greg Schiano and that drill, like putting up the hand as the, the opposite hand when you're rushing the quarterback and how it created a big turnover for Ohio State and so on. And of course, this was a, a drill to like turn the season, you know. And of course, it was something he learned hanging around Bill Belichick because of the Rutgers connection. So I think that versatility, it's a buzzword or, you know, again, I could say when I started doing this. Being a, a, a tweener was a bad thing. And there are still players that are tweeners in the sense that they're not good enough at either to fit. But now being a tweener is an asset. And uh, I think it's it's excellent because, it, again, it engages that cerebral side of the NFL. And it, it separates the teams where you can see the teams that are thinking, sorry, the teams that are looking at a player like Leonard Fournette are thinking more in more rigid terms. And the teams that are looking at Leonard McCaff- Christian McCaffrey are probably thinking in more flexible terms. All right, let's move on to the next question. Bloom, you're a Steelers fan, right? So this question sure. will apply sure. to you. Uh, right. From Jacob Madrid, Big Ben has three years left on a deal and is likely done. How would you go about replacing your quarterback from a draft contract team building perspective? So, you know, I don't think that it should matter. I mean, what I mean by that is, well, it should matter in the sense that Pittsburgh – 
New Orleans, the Chargers, these three quarterbacks all came. Arizona, the Giants, um, and and Eli and Roethlisberger and Rivers all came in the same draft. Um, So these teams need to be thinking about three or four years from now. And New England too, although it sounds like they're they're settled on keeping Garoppolo. We'll see. And they already they already did this, but that's it, right? There's the answer. When did they sign? When did they draft Garoppolo? Did they draft him now when they think that Brady might only have two or three years left? Although it would have been reasonable to say that it was in, within the range of possibilities then, because I think it was like 37. You don't have to wait until it's the year before your quarterback. Where like maybe this is where Arizona is, you know. Then you have urgency. Then you have panic. Then you have desperation. Then maybe you force the evaluation. So this gets us to that great 2011 draft when they drafted before there was a CBA, right? What did we see? All these incredible once-in-a-lifetime defensive players. And then Christian Ponder, Jake Locker. <laughs> because teams didn't, didn't couldn't have a plan, right? They, they didn't know when they were drafting, unlike typical years. And I think that it really did encourage desperation. So... I think that they need to do the, the Steelers need to do the evaluations, and it sounds like they are. And look, I'm all for teams. Any, if I ran a team, I would bring in every one of the first round rated quarterbacks for a visit, every single one, because you're going to probably play them at some point. So why not get inside? You, you just go Belichick on that one. You just bring yeah. them all in, try to figure out how they work. Yeah, exactly. And you ask them questions. Not you're not planning on drafting any of them. Although maybe you might surprise yourself and say, whoa. And this year, I think every one of the 31 teams, uh, we, with New England not having a first-round pick, every one of the other teams might have, uh, uh, the Rams don't have one either, 30 teams. We'll have it, may conceivably, a team that didn't expect to have a, a choice on Watson may have a choice on Watson. A team that didn't expect to have a choice on Trubisky might have a choice on him because of the unpredictable nature of this quarterback class and the way they'll go in the first round. So maybe when you have that guy, and this is like the Steelers um, bringing in Mike Tomlin for that interview, you know, where you don't, you, they thought they were going to hire Wizengrim and they brought Tomlin for interview for the Rooney rule. And, you know, ironically, the Rooney rule worked for the, for the organization that the rules named after. And they said, wait a second, how, how can we not take this guy? So you have to do your due diligence every year anyway. Uh, but now, and, and the nice thing is you can have still clarity because again, you can come at it from the Matt Waldman school and you can do the evaluation and be thorough, but you don't feel like you have to get a quarterback this year. That being said, who's the perfect quarterback? Who's the name that I'm hoping for here? It's Deshaun Kaiser. And we can go off on a tangent if you guys want. Let's do it. All right, let's, um, let's go. For and it. I know you're a Watson. And, and Charles, I know you're a Watson stan. And that's cool because, I mean, I, I can say good. I can say some good things about Watson. But I, I look at Deshaun Kaiser and I think based on the years that I've been watching the draft, and I don't just mean from my own personal perspective, but what the NFL usually fetishizes in quarterbacks. I'm like, he's shown me as much as Joe Flacco showed me. I mean, going into the draft, you know, yeah, I mean, there's some questions, but what you have, like the, the, the lump of clay, the block of marble that you have with Deshaun Kaiser. And, you know, uh, I just saw an article this week where Andy Reid was talking about, oh, he wished he'd had Alex Smith as a rookie, you know, the, the regret or lamenting that if I could have developed his quarterback from the beginning, what I could have done with him. So he's young. I mean, he's only a redshirt sophomore. And if you're the Steelers, you have a two to three year window just to develop him. And I think the NFL pendulum might swing back on this and not having quarterbacks go one and two might help where you don't. Because what? how long has it been since a first year or a quarterback drafted in the first round that they've given like two years to get on the field? Does it even happen where they get 
half a season before they well, get on the field. Yeah. So uh, I, I did these numbers a while ago, and it was like there's been like six quarterbacks in the last decade who threw less than 200 passes as rookies. And it was like Brady Quinn, Jamarcus Russell, Jake Locker, Johnny Menzel, and then like Paxton Lynch. So it's like like if you can't get on the field as a rookie and you're a first-round pick, it's because you can't play. It's not because they're developing you. Well, they, because they don't anymore. But I wonder, right. if, I wonder if like Jimmy Garoppolo, for instance – is going to convince teams that maybe there is value to I mean I was really it was really sad in some ways that the Rams forced Goff on the field and it really felt like one of those situations where the owner calls downstairs and says the rookie's playing and you don't have a choice but right. if the Steelers are in an ideal position here because if what Kaiser needs like Brian Kelly needs more time if that's what he needed then the Steelers have time so do the Giants so do the Giants so or even a team like Kansas City with Alex Smith, knowing that the, the future without Alex Smith could be as soon as next year. So I think, but I think the, the original question is the Steelers have to have to done their homework on these quarterbacks. And the word has been that every time one of these quarterbacks comes to visit the facility, who's hovering around Ben Roethlisberger, which is good. I, I mean, I think maybe there'd be a little part of him that's like, Oh, this is the guy that's going to replace me. But also it sounds like he wants to take an active role in, in developing the quarterback that's coming after him. So if Deshaun Kaiser's on the board when the Steelers are on the clock, I really hope they take him because I just think that especially seeing what they've been able to do with Roethlisberger is they, it took them a long time to build the offense around him that he wanted. He was, you know, he, he would always, and he's back to clamoring for more weapons. Few quarterbacks feel as free to, to, you know, put on a GM hat and say, think that they have a say in these things, but Roethlisberger does, but they built an offense around him that can take advantage of his unique abilities to keep plays alive, his, arm and ability to make deep throws from crazy platforms and things like that. And Deshaun Kaiser can give you a lot of those same things. And I think Deshaun Kaiser's mobility as a scrambler and runner after the play breaks down will be much more lethal than Watson's in the NFL because of his size and because of his uh, deep arm and ability to force defenses to respect like throws to the opposite hash and throws downfield. Um, I think that Deshaun Kaiser is the he should be known as the dual threat run, runner quarterback more than Watson in this class because I think his running ability is going to translate better. You know, it's, it's, it's so funny because like last year, I mean, I, I think Kaiser's QB too to to Watson, but like he's head and shoulders above what where Jared Goff and Wentz were as projects right. as prospects to me. And I mean, I would I think even Watson is head and shoulders better than Wentz and Goff. So just to see like. So so much doubt and uncertainty in this class, and I'm like, dude, you're gonna get at least two guys that are better than the guys who went to the top two last year, and I even like Trubisky better than Golfer went. So, yeah, like the, the narrative around this quarterback class is just is baffling to me. It, especially when you consider, so like Deshaun Kaiser's never had an off season where he's been the guy. So if you want to talk about him in terms of development, I mean, he was a redshirt quarterback when all the Everett Golson stuff went down. Um, you know, he, he was a quarterback, too, behind uh, – what's his name? I'm spacing on it right now. The other dude. Um, Malik Zaire, who's now Zaire, transferring, yeah. to, transferring to North Carolina. And then he split time the next offseason. So if you're talking about a guy from a developmental perspective, I mean, he's basically doing it on the fly. Like, there, there's a reason – like, even against – you know, in season last year, they were pulling they were pulling him for drives from Malik Zaire, yeah. who would then get yeah. them in, like, third and 16s, right? So it's like – I mean, I'm sure that's happening in practice. Like, Kaiser's never 
like the the reason why you see confidence issues, I think, is because he had a really short leash. And I mean, this is a Brian. I mean, we could go off on Brian Kelly for a bit. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I I don't. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of him. But I, I what the only thing that gives me hesitation about that, right? Is so the guys who were drafted in 2012, the draft class that is now coming off of their fifth year contracts, like we were saying, right, and are signing their actual second contracts in the league. Since those guys have been drafted, uh, I want what was it 20, 24 of the of the 32 franchises in the NFL have changed general managers or owner or general managers yeah. and head coaches at least one time. So you're talking about turnover of what is that three fourths of the league. So yeah. stability isn't really something that you can have. But w- when we're talking about those teams, I mean, like those teams are New Orleans. It is the Giants. You know, it is Pittsburgh. Like those are the teams who can kind of draft and develop guys. That's my big worry for if a quarterback lands in Arizona, because I don't know how long Bruce Arians is going to last there. Right. Well, teams and I, I almost wonder if teams will do it. New England's again. How many times anytime we're talking high level football philosophy, do we say or do it the way New England does it? Because New England, whether it's an offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator or a position coach or somebody on the field of a player, they always seem to have a plan for the next succession. And that succession, as I said with Steelers, Wisenhunt and Grimm were actually the plan after Cower. And it was really going to be continuity. Um, because they were just coming from the previous regime. And I do think that we talk about, well, teams planning ahead when their quarterback is going to be too old to start. Well, what about teams planning ahead uh, for the next head coach and continuity in those terms? Because continuity is so underrated, and it can be like a chicken or an egg thing. Like you have continuity when you have a good staff and organizational clarity, and everyone pulls in the same direction and it works, and then you want to keep that band together. And, well, you want to have continuity, but if it's not good, then you get to this feedback loop effect, like with Cleveland, where it, you just you flail, you know, and the hirings are flailing. And then you even see like with Cleveland now, or the, the front office and the head new head coach, even on, the, I mean, I'm sorry, in Buffalo, you see like, are the front office and head coach even on the same page right now? Like all the stuff with Tyrod Taylor. So that means probably the, you're going to see the front office turnover. You see with San Francisco, how you can dismantle one of the three or four best core. I mean, who would have said when the Harbaugh 49ers were at their peak, they give it a couple of years, they'll be the worst team in the league. Nobody, absolutely nobody. So that continuity is so important, but you can't just say, let's have continuity for continuity's sake. So maybe, hey guys, maybe like it's not the players that are the problem. It's the coaches in the front office. It's all the executives. It's all of that like leadership thinking. And if we just let teams like run themselves, we'd have a, a better product and better outcomes for these players. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I just, but sometimes, like, I know Justin has talked about this a lot with with golf. I think sometimes you can kind of tell if a guy just sucks, like right off the bat. Yeah. At the same at the same time. Yeah. Well, with the quarterback position, certainly there's an adjustment to the speed and the quality of the defenses, and there are certainly quarterbacks that just like Blaine Gabbert. You know, there are certainly quarterbacks that just you could tell that the the leap is something that they weren't going to be able to handle. And I suppose if you're going to knock Deshaun Kaiser, it might be that like sometimes he, he seems like a half beat pro- behind processing things at times. Like he processes it correctly, but it's just a little bit late. And that's not going to get better in the pros. Um, but he has a lot of things to over, overcome that. But certainly a quarterback, there are definitely guys that you can give that stamp right away and say, it's, there's nothing you can really do to fix what's wrong with him. All right. Next question. 
Uh, from Grant Sinning, again, is Josh Reynolds the most underrated receiver in the class? Now, I, I haven't seen a snap of Josh Reynolds, so I'm going to defer to you on this one. I mean, Matt Waldman would say that, not to steal any Matt Waldman's under. Get the RSP, everybody, mattwaldman.com. Um, certainly, he's one of those receivers that uh, has length and enough speed to bring his length into play, makes plays on the ball, play, make plays on the ball in the air very well, and certainly translates as somebody, I mentioned like Terrence Williams earlier in the show. You know, I think he can translate as like that kind of number two in the NFL. And it's hard to say who the most underrated receiver is in the class though, because you have this top three, John Ross, the speedster, Mike Williams, the the big bully, and then Corey Davis, who's kind of a technician, but it but has excellent athletic traits too. And then the next 15 or 16 receivers all project as NFL starters, all in varieties of styles and advantages that they present. And again, with in the case of Reynolds, maybe more of a downfield player and someone that can use his length to win the ball in the air. But there are other players in the, in the draft like that. Jalen Robinette from Air Force, who maybe is a little bit farther away. Uh, Mac Hollins, the special teams wonder in North Carolina. Um I see also Kenny Galladay from Northern Illinois, Robert Davis, who's more athletic from Georgia State. These these long athletic receivers. Josh Reynolds is a little bit thinner, and, and then I'll toss also in that group um, Josh Malone from Tennessee, and probably the most tantalizing, although one with the biggest biggest questions as far as his off field, Ishmael Zamora from Baylor. And if there's an if you want to talk about the most underrated in the class from a ceiling standpoint, it is Zamora. Zamora has a first round physical trait outlook he's martavis isn't he he can play oh yeah well but he's better than martavis he's shown me more than i well that's a good you know what you're right he's martavis in the sense that remember martavis bryant was behind sammy watkins and deandre hopkins at clemson and he really only came on in the second half of his senior year but god could you you see the athlete just i mean look martavis bryant's one of the five or ten best athletes or athletic specimen at wide receiver in the nfl period you know, some people said at times it's Randy Moss-esque. And as far as the tools he has to work with, that's not that much of an exaggeration. And certainly Zamora, isn't, he isn't quite as fast as Bryant, but as far as having length and explosion, and I think Zamora has shown more flashes of how to really maximize those tools. And he's a good hands catcher and a real competitive player over the middle. There's a small sample size on Zamora, but he has a ceiling as high as any wide receiver in this class. It's just this off-field stuff that we'll see, you know, and I mean, who, which front office is going to have to deal with more? Because um, there's both, there's videos in both cases between Mixon and Zamora, and then we can get into some political stuff. See, I, I, I want to come on your other podcast, Justice, and we get into the political stuff about how the football audience views dogs, how the football audience views women, but now we're really off track. <laughs> uh, okay, well, right. I saw this take on the timeline recently. I don't remember who said it, but they said that uh, yeah. Zamora was better than Mike Williams, and that kind of yeah. caused a fury. But I, 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 like I said, I haven't really touched this receiver class outside the big names. I don't think it's that outlandish that in three or four years when we check back in, that will be the outcome. Okay. Where, where, where do you stand on Mike Williams? Because I know that Waldman has compared him to uh, Brandon LaFell. Yeah, and so Mike Williams was a really – I've never evaluated a receiver quite like him because – and I one of the things I'll say right off gives me pause is that he's winning because of his physical advantages in most cases. And that isn't something that always translates. And, and it isn't even that uh, 
you aren't going to have physical advantages because he's still growing into his paws like every other draft prospect. But in, in Waldman, we were talking about this, use the name Brent Grimes, you know. So he he's still going to have four or five inches and 20 or 30 pounds on the Brent Grimes of the world. But they're going to know how to play him in a way that college corners didn't. They're going to understand how to anticipate him. And what's really odd about him is that he doesn't really seem to seek separation, you know. He almost seems more comfortable when the when the defensive back is close to him. And the way I put it was, it's almost like the defensive back is a landmark in his route. And he really likes to be close to the defensive back so that when the ball's in the air, he can jostle them. And he can make them, like, you know, miss a step or otherwise. That he knows that he has the physical advantage on him. And then that sets him up to make all this 50-50 ball plays he makes, which he doesn't make as consistently as people make it sound like, you know. He's not DeAndre Hopkins. He's not DeAndre Hopkins like playing every ball perfectly. It just he and he and as the the measurable shirt, he isn't like he has a jump out of the gym vert. He can just hang and he has the length to like reach around and over guys where maybe his leap timing is off a little bit and he's not quite high pointing the ball. But again, he still has such a physical advantage that he can at least have the best chance to win those balls. I also think that there's something where it's difficult to tease apart the evaluation of Watson and Mike Williams here. Because if Deshaun Watson made a living on those back shoulder throws and those throws where he allowed Mike Williams to play his game, but what if he doesn't have a receiver like that on his pro team? And he has to rely more on dropping the deep ball in the bucket, you know, um, passing over the middle more, which he didn't have to do as often. So those things are hard to tease apart. But but you can turn that around with Mike Williams and say, what if Mike Williams, if Mike Williams, if Billy takes Mike Williams and you put him with Carson Wentz, that's fine. But say if a if a team like Washington took him, where you have Kirk Cousins, who's not inclined to play the quarterback that way, then I don't like it as much. So I think Mike Williams, his physical, some of them, the physical advantage will translate. He'll be a starter in the NFL, but I don't necessarily think his game will translate. And I think that he might be one of those players that for a year or two are really disappointing, and then they'll figure out a way to harness it because I, I think that his game worked really well for college. But defensive backs in the NFL aren't going to be as easy to just push around. Would you feel comfortable taking Mike Williams in the first round? I wouldn't. I mean, I would take John Ross in the first round, assuming medicals are okay. I would feel comfortable taking Corey Davis in the first round. Um, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't take Mike Williams in the first round. Just and, and again, I mean, you know, depending on my quarterback, um, I might feel better about it. But I still have some questions about how his game is going to translate because I've never watched a receiver that has the kind of reputation he has as far as draft value that doesn't really create separation. That doesn't really his game doesn't even seem that inclined to create separation. He gets a good release. He gets the position he wants into his route. And this makes him really good on slants, uh, makes him good on posts. But he's not actually in that back and forth with the defensive back to try to make them misstep in a way that allows them to run free. And I just don't know how that translates in, in the NFL. Justice, do you have any input on that? Because I, I, you, you think Mike Williams is going pretty high, don't you? Uh, he's my, he's my third, he's my third uh, receiver in this class. Um, I came, I came around a lot more on Corey Davis. I had some worries about him as like, I didn't think he was going to be a, I didn't think he was going to be an elite athlete, and then he didn't test anyway, and he was going against, you know, he was going against Matt guys. I ended up watching all of his reps against those Big Ten teams because they basically played two a year, 
down there. And uh, I wa- I watched him, and he had he had more of those plays where like he catches a slant, and then you like look away to check your phone for a second, and then you like look up, and he's still running, and you're wondering yeah. how the hell that happened. You know what I mean? Like yeah, like, that that's really his game. And I, I'm I'm totally cool with betting on that. I I think he's gonna end up being like a ten top ten player for me. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, especially for a team like Tennessee. I mean, people talk about. I mean, we already talked about how we, they want to be that smash mouth type of team on the ground. Um, as stupid as it sounds, like blocking, like having a receiver crack on those type of, on like basically essentially what you're doing in those type of schemes is these receivers are trying to crack down on the safety and you're trying to force cornerbacks to make tackles, right? And I think blocking matters a lot in those schemes. And if you're talking about at the top and Mariota needs a deep threat, like there aren't many guys who can block and also run, right? So like Corey Davis kind of, you know, checks that box in a way that John Ross can't as a blocker and that Mike Williams can't as like a deep threat, anything more than like a 50, 50 guy. Um, I want to get your, I want to get your take on one of these other guys though. You name dropped a bunch of uh, day three guys, including the kid out of Georgia state that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to, I want to talk about, uh, have you seen Chad Williams yet? The kid out of Grambling? Yeah. And I know that he's getting a lot more visits and he, and speed. Um, yep. And, and he also, I, I believe, stood out the senior bowl enough where made people go back and say, I need to take a closer look. So, you know, we talk about risers during draft season. I think that's often applied in situations where it doesn't really explain what's happening. But I think in his case, that is what's happening. Yeah. And he, he was a guy who, uh, I, th- I can't remember what happened. I think it was like robbery or something like that. Chad Williams, and uh, he wasn't invited to the combine uh, because he, he was one of like the arrest, the arrest right. blacklist guys. Um, but he stood out at the Senior Bowl. I think Charles and I voted him as like the guy most likely to fight someone when we were down there at the Senior Bowl. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he he swung at someone. I can't remember who it was, but was I mean, he looks he too. looks the part. He looks the part for sure. All right. Yeah, and I think that. Go ahead. No, we're about to say. Oh, just with with Williams, you know, you also have um, a game he played against Arizona where he looked really good against a, a higher level of competition, and he, I, I just see a receiver there that. Um, it's someone that's going to be able to win balls in the air. And again, how, with how comfortable he looked at the senior bowl, uh, it really erases a lot of it, small school concerns you would have. All right. I have a question for you, Bloom. And if you have the first pick in a rookie draft yeah, yeah. this year, who are you taking the okay. first pick? It's probably, it's Corey Davis right now. And it's probably going to be Corey Davis. And I mean, I could go on about why I like Davis so much. And I think that he, he I don't think that Mike Williams is in the same class of prospect. As Davis, not that I think Davis is like a Julio Jones, AJ Green, or even Amari Cooper, like where they were at in the NFL's eyes. Um, but he offers so much that will translate, and his I think his athletic ceiling is higher than Mike Williams. Um, that being said, when I started doing all these fantasy rookie rankings, I was really concerned mostly about talent, and I thought, well, situation's only going to be a small part of it. But more and more, I think situation is a big deal. So a receiver, you know, the third receiver off the board might end up being the first in rookie drafts because of the quarterback and offense he lands in, right? If New Orleans at number 32 takes uh, John Ross to replace Brandon Cooks, then I'm going to say, give me the guy who's playing with Drew Brees, especially if Corey Davis ends up with, um, you know, with Marcus Mariota and a more run-based offense. You know, another uh, place, another landing spot, that one of these top receivers may end up where I'm not as excited would be Buffalo, you know? So even if Corey Davis is the pick in Buffalo, 
I don't know if he's going to be my number one pick. Um, and likewise with these running backs, you know, um, if Christian McCaffrey ends up in Indianapolis, he's going to be my number one. For that matter, probably if Dalvin Cook ends up in Indianapolis, that's going to be my number one rookie. Uh, because you're looking at short-term uh, opportunity, you're looking at the quality of the offense. Uh, so the top five or six are going to be scrambled once we find out where they're going to go. Now, did, did Dalvin Cook's combine, did that kind of scare you away from him a little bit? Did yeah. that drop you in his uh, in your rookie rankings? No, no. I mean, because, it, okay, so I think that once you establish a player uh, based on evaluation on film, then you want the measurables to agree. But if they don't, then you, you, you rely on the film. And I think the measurables can show you something that maybe can be there that isn't there. You know, I think Zay Jones measurables. Maybe people go back and say, wow, if he's not used the way that East Carolina is using him, what else could be there? But I don't look at it the other way where I would say I've observed, you know, explosion, lateral agility, a straight line, like second gear that I wasn't able, the, the numbers didn't back up. I'm not going to take points off of that. If I see it, especially at a place like Florida State, I know it's going to translate. All right. Uh, one last question before we let you go. Sure. From Clint at Clint McLean underscore 17. When will Eagles fans admit that Sam Bradford is better than ha. Carson Wentz? <laughs> <laughs> what was the question to you? Like, would you rather have Carson Wentz in his contract or Aaron Rodgers in his, right? Oh, my God. That was another one. That was awful. Uh, it's, well, you know, Minnesota fans will get to chime in here. But I think that one thing we can say is that Howie Roseman handled that whole situation pretty well, all things considered. That they got a first-round pick back for Bradford. We'll see about whether they were right, right about Wentz or not, but at this point we can say Wentz looks like a better pick than Goff. And maybe they would have taken Goff if they had the choice, but that's worked out for them. And they did the right thing by getting him Alshon Jeffrey, Torrey Smith. Now you have actual outside receivers you can to make Jordan Matthews' role clearer. They have a good offensive line. So I, I do think we could see Carson Wentz look more like he did in the first half of the year. Um I'm afraid for Eagles fans, though. They'll always have something to be neurotic about. They're horrible. They're the worst fans. Yeah, they're, they're the they're worst. Horrible. The worst. Like, if we were to lay them down for, like, a therapist. <laughs> the mo- the, 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 they I punch the therapist. They throw snowballs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They get arrested, yeah. Yeah, therapist needs his own therapist after talking to Eagles Twitter. Perfect. Uh, all right. Before we let you go, anything you're working yeah. on that you want to promote coming up in the near future before the draft? Well, the Bloom 100 will be out like in a couple of weeks. Um, it's for mixed rookie offense and defense drafts, trying to really look at evaluating these players, but evaluating through the lens of what matters most in fantasy football. Uh, and then that'll get shook up after the draft and we see the destinations. Love, tons of free stuff at Football Guys. I mean, it's so beautiful, just the, the football crazy people. I know that this applies to y'all too, if not more for y'all in the off season, that the audience we have, the conversations, the community that we have when... It's just, these are all thought exercises. Um, It's a beautiful thing to get to take part in this community. It's a beautiful thing to get to be on the show. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, This was, this is going to conclude episode 20 of Seven the Edge. We appreciate the support as we hit the 20th episode. And we'll be back next week with Chris Burke from Sports Illustrated to get some final takes as we crack down towards the draft. See you guys next week. Five-star reviews. Five-star reviews only. (laughs) 